0: My number one bit of advice about writing a book, don't think of it as a book. Put one idea
1: at a time out into the world. And how does that help you write? Like, like, where does it show up in your writing process? What's going on? Get individual ideas online. Get them out into the world. Let them breathe. Then the world
0: can give you some feedback on them. You can test them out. You can see where you might have been thinking about it wrong.
1: What I love about talking to you and reading your work is you're always making me question, why am I like that? Why do I believe that? There we go. Like, that's the ultimate reward. What is your process for becoming a master writer? I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly. Derek, welcome to the podcast. I've been a a fan of your work for the better half of a decade now. I recently learned that you were writing a posthumous biography. What are you learning about that? Talk about that. Okay, well, it was inspired initially by one of my best friends,
0: Milt Olin, who is just one of the wisest, smartest people I'd ever met. Every time you'd have a conversation with this guy, you'd come away just with your perception of life changed. Um, I'd always like, go home and take notes after we talked. We'd have these great conversations over restaurants for hours. And then he died. He was hit uh, and killed on his bicycle uh, by a police car, weirdly enough, uh, steered into the bicycle lane and he was killed. But the problem is that Milt never wrote down anything. And I was so sad after he died that, like, I mean, devastated to lose my friend, but also, like, double devastated that all of that wisdom he had was only ever going to be shared with the people that he had conversations with, not written down. And so, I already liked writing what I'd learned to share with others, but that really emphasized it, right? Like, that really brought out this idea of writing Lasting after death.
1: My grandfather was not someone who I got to know super well. And now that I've become more interested in ideas, I was just working out, thinking about this, be like, oh, my goodness, my grandfather understood the human condition. And yet, because there isn't that much writing that he did. Those thoughts, those ideas, those memories are lost to time.
0: Yeah. his. I've been thinking about this idea of like the, the personality. So imagine this, that everything you've ever learned, the culmination of everything you've ever realized or learned or taken in or experienced, that's get, it gets filtered so that you adopt the traits that meant the most to you or stuck in your persona for some reason. And then when you share your personality with somebody even let's like put writing aside for a second let's say my friend milt olin his personality lives inside me now like i can um, often imagine what would milt say in fact i wrote this little article uh s-i-v-e dot r-s slash m-e-n-t the first four letters of mentor so sivers slash ment, as i wrote this article about how i communicate with my mentors So I say I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that and I I I I ask myself what my mentor would say. And I do all this before I contact them. And in the end, I often never contact them because I I just needed this thought process of what would this person say. So Milt Olin was definitely one of my mentors, and I and he still is. That often when I'm in a situation, I wonder or ask myself, what would Milt say? And his personality lives on inside of me, right? So this is a wonderful motivation to write down everything you've learned, or even just share your point of view on something. Because just sharing your point of view, even if it doesn't seem that impressive or breathtaking, you're sharing yourself and who you are is the culmination of everything you've ever learned, filtered through the things that you've chosen to adopt. And that's what we call our personality, is the things that like the traits that we've adopted. So just sharing that with the world is filtering the past for the future.
1: You know, one of the things that I've always so admired about you, and you see it in, in, in How to Live, your new book, is your ability to distill, to compress. And you did an experiment where you said, I'm going to write every day for a month. And then you said, I don't like that. <laughs> How do you think about the balance between those two? <laughs> Thanks for calling me out on that. I am not sharing enough lately.
0: The past couple of years, I've just had my head down too much in other things. Um, I also admire Seth Godin like you do too. Oh, yeah. And I know that your interview with him was cold writing every day because that's like the main takeaway I got from him too. He, he says it over and over again. It's the most important thing he's ever done is choosing to write every day no matter what. And so, yeah, I was trying to channel my other hero, Seth Godin, when I tried writing an article every day. But I think the difference for me was I wanted to raise the bar a bit so that when I tell my subscribers, my fans, my listeners, whatever you want to call them, when I tell them, hey, I've posted something new, I want it to be something worthy of their time, whereas I think that a lot of the things that I, when I was posting every single day, I didn't find it quite worthy. Um, what's funny is that somebody else from the outside once looked, who knows my writing very well and knows all of my posts, actually felt that the stuff I posted during those 30 days was of no lesser quality than anything else I've ever posted, so maybe I'm just completely wrong, I'm an idiot and and I should just post it all and not try to pre-judge, pre-filter for the world. But I just, I feel better if I raise the bar a bit. And I I think probably the sweet spot for me would be like posting once a week or twice a week or something like that, where I'm writing every single day, having ideas every day, but just the ones that feel like, "Mm, damn, that That is so worth sharing. Then you put those out once or twice a week.
1: You know, what I struggle with is a lot of times on my more polished pieces, I lose that fire that you can only get right after an epiphany. There's a childish excitement right after you have an epiphany and you run to the page, you write it down. And now I'm not saying that the things that I instantly come up with are the best. But I do think that as a writer, one of the things that I can improve on is keeping that excitement on pieces that I have worked on for a long time. It's almost like there's a level of writing that's actually too polished. And I wonder if I run into that sometimes. Hey,
0: you just finished reading my How to Live book, uh, or at least some of it. Did you think that was too
1: polished? It's careful. It's intentionally careful. The frame of how to live is a very careful text. And I think that you set that out at the very beginning. I think that you say something like, read slowly one line at a time or something. Yeah. And so you tell the reader from the very beginning, this is a polished piece of work. For example, take the piece about Santa Monica beach running, okay? Where you basically say, you go as fast as you can. It took 34 minutes or something. And then you slowed down and took you 38. That story is an epiphany that you had that you likely then went to the page, and there's a freshness about that piece that isn't in how to live, but i at the same time, I think that there are different contexts
0: yeah that's that's a really good point. I like that the um the excitement, the childlike excitement you have of a new idea you're bursting to share um I, I think we always fear that we don't want to be like the stoner that like. You know, gets really high and says, do you ever look at your hand? And like the problem with this (laughs) idea of people connecting drugs with creativity is that is that the drugs make things seem more interesting to you. But then the ideas that you put out on drugs are often then less interesting to others because you found them too interesting at the time. And so others, you know, others don't think it's so interesting to look at your hand. That's not a big idea, but it was fascinating to you at the time. See, I think the like uh, it's funny. So I sometimes wonder if like the moment I have a big epiphany, am I in am I temporarily
1: high you know, with this idea? Well, one of the things that you've said is that when listening to a piece of music that you're usually too analytical. So we can almost transport the same conversation into music. So does the same thing happen when you read or what are you feeling? Okay, I'm curious if you have this too. When you've studied the craft of something
0: so deeply, then you see details that most people don't see or hear in the case of music. So yeah, when I'm listening to music, sometimes I nerd out on like the recording engineering of how they did the hi-hat or they put, put a certain effect on the echo. And I'm like, ooh. Listen to that, and, and anybody else listening just says, "What? It's just a cheesy song, stupid lyrics." I'm like, "Shh, sh- sh- shut up! Listen to that echo. <laughs> Listen to that reverb." And it could be the same thing with writing. Actually, I'll do another musical comparison. That there are a lot of songs that I like, even though it actually might be a bad song. But damn, it's got one really interesting chord. Like it goes to this one really unexpected place there. I'm like, "Ooh!" So I love it for that. I even found this with films sometimes i would nerd out on cinematography and uh i'll give you an example of a bad movie that had interesting editing for example was oliver stone's movie um natural born killers so many people hate this movie my friends hated the movie but i just watched it again and again and again because i found the editing fascinating that they would often take a scene and break it into a different point of view, and suddenly throw an effect on it, and like show it again. And it's just like I just thought the editing was fascinating, so I watched the movie again and again. But I was really watching the editing; I didn't really care about the message or the meta point. You know, who cares?
1: Actually, this is a great analogy. So here's, so I've done some film stuff, and I've made you know movie or like not not movies. I called them movies at the time, but I made like YouTube vlogs and stuff, and I've. Then when I was in college, I'd do college television, and what I found was after I would edit for a while, I couldn't actually see it anymore. I don't know if you've worked on design projects. I don't know if you've worked on film projects. You can't see what you've made. And what happens is because you've spent so much time with it, you become impatient. And what you think is the right speed is too fast for what the listener needs. Oh, Brian Eno, the father of ambient music, had a heuristic. He would finish an ambient song and automatically take every part of it and double the length. And then he'd say, that is now what I'm going to ship. Interesting. You know, you and I have studied the craft of writing so
0: deeply. Um, And the problem is, yeah, when I read almost anything by almost anyone, I almost always feel it could be done better. Like almost every sentence could be improved. I I just, I can't help but look at things like an editor and I have to try to to turn that off and get to the real point of what someone's saying because we have to separate the details and the point, right? Like the the example I used earlier of the uh, certain effect on the echo in a music. That's the details. I shouldn't miss the point of the song or I shouldn't think that if I, put a cool effect on the echo that i've made a great song if it's a bad song so it's the same thing with writing that um sometimes say in poetry for example we appreciate a certain combination of words like we really love these three words together and we go ooh that's so beautiful but the idea underlying it might be you know banal <laughs> but we just love those words so it can be the same with our writing that if we nerd out on the craft too much we could end up saying something not impressive because we're showing our craft or we're too fascinated with our craft. So uh, yeah, it's distracting.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think David Foster Wallace uh, fell, fell prey to this. He was so obsessed with the craft of writing that I think it often hurt his own writing. And so for me, what I find is I talk to other people. But I would love to hear this for you. Like, you don't really hang out with people. So (laughs) do you, (laughs) how does this decision fuel your writing? Does it help? Does it hurt? Yeah, my situation's not ideal. I live in New Zealand
0: and I moved here because it's a great place to raise a kid. So I moved, I was living in Singapore when my kid was born and moved to New Zealand so that he could grow up in paradise. After like flying from Singapore to New Zealand, I looked back at my calendar of people i'd met i met up with 490 people one-on-one in the two years i lived there i had 490 like coffees basically uh 490 conversations and i was so social and i overdid it so moving to new zealand was mostly for my kid but also it was a time for me to just like put my head down do my work instead of just being so hyper social but yeah i've noticed that um i miss out on the ideas, I got a caveat coming to that in a minute, um, because yeah, most of my favorite ideas have come from this two-way banter in a conversation with somebody where first they something they bring up sparks a reaction in you and you say, huh, I wonder if this. And, and then either they can show just disinterest like, hmm, yeah, that's not interesting, or... Luckily, they can push back. They can say like, "Mm, no, I think that's not true because such and such. And you go, ah, you're right. That isn't true. I was thinking of it wrong. Or the best is when in a conversation you say, hmm, do you think it might be this? And they go, oh, my God, that's so true. I've never thought about that. And you go, ooh, you know, mental note, like a like a comedian testing out new material. Um, You think, "Okay, cool. That one worked that resonated um and so those are the things that i would turn into future articles is often things that my friends found amazing in conversation or i should say not just friends but like people found interesting in conversation um the caveat i was going to say though is the phone works just as well for me i have wonderful conversations with friends around the world so when Uh, you heard somewhere, I guess I must have said somewhere that I don't hang out with people. Um, that's just a side effect of my remote location in the middle of the Pacific ocean here. Um, but I do have great conversations on the phone with friends and that's still where some of my favorite ideas come from.
1: There was one thing to get super meta about this. There was one thing that I think you missed. Um, and it's this line from John O'Donohue. He's an Irish poet. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I think you'd really like his work. And he asks, when was the last time you had a great conversation? A conversation that wasn't just two intersecting monologues, but when you overheard yourself saying things you never knew you knew, that you heard yourself receiving from somebody words that found places within you that you thought you had lost. And he goes on to basically talk about how most conversations are a game of ping pong, hit, receive, hit, receive, but that a good conversation actually elevates both people onto a new plane of thought. And both of them are experiencing something that they could not get to on their own. And he says that conversations like that are food and drink for the soul. And I say this because I think that this is the other thing that a conversation can do is it's two people dancing in tandem, ending up somewhere that they wouldn't have come up with on their own. And it's in that partnership, I think, that we often come up with new ideas when you get, oh, yes. Oh, I didn't think about that. Hey, have you thought of this? And there's a support that is inside of that. There's a famous little
0: itty-bitty blog post I had called Hell Yeah or No. Of course. and. The thing is, I try to tell anybody who will listen that that idea, the core of it actually came from my musician friend, Amber Rubarth, who's a brilliant musician. And it was when I was on the phone with her and talking about like, I'm supposed to go to this conference in Australia, but I really don't want to. And I was like talking about it. I was like, you know, I just feel that we just need to like raise the bar all the way up so that. We just say no to almost everything and only say yes to the things that we're really just like, "Mm." yeah, like super excited about. And then she's the one that said, so what you're trying to say is, it's like not a decision between yes and no. It's a decision between fuck yeah or no. And I (laughs) laughed. I was like, yeah, that's it. It's like a decision between fuck yeah or no. And, you know, then I like wrote the article that night. And uh, at first, the original version was longer, and I gave her credit, and I changed the word to hell. and um and then, when Penguin published it in this book by Seth Godin, you know, they they edited it down to just like, ten sentences, which I was okay with. Um, but yeah, that was it was fully a conversation, like both of us bouncing off each other. And it's great. Amber Rubarth and I still have these great conversations, like every week or two. She's amazing.
1: I don't know why I missed your quote today. I'm not usually like this, but I'm feeling it right now, Derek. And there's a line from Tom Stoppard who says, laughter is the sound of comprehension. And I think that that's what happened in your conversation with Amber is she says that you laugh. And actually, if you deconstruct what's going on is laughter is your body telling you that you have a very compressed unit of knowledge that has... Deconstructed your worldview and reconstructed it in a way that's better in an instant. Have you interviewed a stand-up comedian? No, but I got to do it.
0: Yeah, i stand-up comedians are. I think they're still underrated, and I think that that's comedy. Yeah, it's it's like philosophy. It's like it's. I I think like Louis C.K. I think is a philosopher. I love a, the the insights of a great stand-up comic, the good ones. Yeah.
1: Well, it's funny. I was talking to uh, one of my best friends is philosopher, and I was talking to him on the phone last night, and he said that most of the philosophers that he's learned with take the enchanted and make it mundane, and then what he, a comedian does is they take the mundane and make it enchanted. And I thought that was a beautiful way to put it. What a comedian does, what Louis C.K. will do so well, is he'll take... Him getting the kids ready for school. And it'll be this super mundane thing that he's just doing. And he'll spin it into a story. He'll sort of rile it up. And by enchanted, I don't mean the magical sense of enchanted, but it's adding a scaffolding to it that makes it hilarious, that makes it ring in your mind afterwards. And what a comedian... What so often they do, I think Larry David's the absolute master of this, is like Larry David has this great skit about the chat and cut, where like there's a bunch of people in line and rather than waiting in the back of the line, you go up to person number eight in line and you say, Derek, haven't seen you in a while. And it's totally bogus. Like you've met this person once and Larry David's in the back and he goes, oh, you're doing the chat and cut. I'm not going to allow you to do this. There have been no fewer than 10 times in my life now where I've been in a line and I've had this thing where I've seen a long line, I've started t- thinking about the chat and cut. And I do think maybe enchanted is the wrong word. But what he was going for in the conversation is it's the most mundane thing ever that you've now brought, that like, turned into a whole story. And uh, that's what he was trying to get at.
0: You know what I like the comparison of is drawing with what you were just talking about, that my kid is 10 years old now. And I think it would be wonderful for... I was thinking about this for him, but for any of us. To learn to draw because of the way it makes you look at details so well, right? Like, there's this idea that anybody can take apart a car, but can you assemble a car, right? So I think of drawing... It's kind of like assembling. Like it's, it's one thing to look at a tree. Sorry, I'm kind of doing this. I'm looking off camera at this imaginary tree. Um, it's one thing to look at a tree, but it's like, can you recreate a tree? It makes you pay attention to the details so much more. So I wonder if comedians, whether stand-up comedians or the other kind, I don't know, um, have to pay super close attention to these nuances in life. Like that, like Larry David's specialty is social norms, right? Like all that stuff going back to Seinfeld was all social norms. Um, And call out social norms by paying close attention to them. That's kind of fun. This idea of like, you have to pay attention to details to be good at what you do. You have to pay attention to details to be good at drawing. You have to pay attention to details to be a great comedian.
1: Have you heard the David McCullough story on Look at Your Fish? Neither, no. Okay, so David McCullough he just died, which I'm really bummed about. But he was a big painter. He he spent as much time painting as he did writing. He said it forces you to look. And I don't know if it's apocryphal, but he says he had a a college teacher, and the on day one he it's a writing class, and the teacher plops a fish on the table and leaves and goes write about the fish. Twenty minutes later, teacher comes back and goes what'd you write? The students go, we didn't write anything. You put a fish on the table, there's nothing to write about. And the teacher goes, no, keep looking. And by the end of the semester, they're expected to write like 3,000 words about the fish. And the whole point is that you just weren't looking closely enough. The fish was there. You can write about the scales. You can write about the color. You can write about the history of the fish, all these sorts of things. And the whole point is just what you're saying. To be more focused on the details. Why did you choose not to read when you were writing How to Live? (laughs) Oh, because I was trying to put
0: everything I had ever learned into that one little book. Um, the, The rough draft was 1,300 pages. I was really doing like a life dump. I've heard a few other parents have this idea. Like when your first kid is born, and you think, oh my God, what if I don't live until they're old enough? I want to tell them what I've learned. I want to I want to share my wisdom. I want to you know, tell, put them everything I've learned into a book. I've heard a few different parents say this to me. And I'll admit, How to Live was a little bit of the same idea. I was trying to put like everything important I had ever learned in my life into this one book. And, uh, and that's why I didn't want to read anything new because it's like I was already at a rough draft. And what if I were to read an amazing book and suddenly learn something new about life? I'd want to put it in there. So I was like, no, please don't give me any new wisdom. I'm on my
1: rough draft. I can't take it. So, um, yeah, that's why. And you don't feel like reading could have helped you access things that you had known but had forgotten about? No,
0: because I do my notes. I started doing this in 2007. I read hundreds of books before 2007, but it was in 2007 I realized I looked at this one book that I had read like only five years before, and I went, huh, I know I read this, but I don't remember a damn thing from it. I was like, this is sad. It's getting lost. All this stuff I've read is getting lost in my brain. So I started at that time just keeping a pencil in my hand when reading books and underlining every cool idea or just circling a cool paragraph. And then when I was done with the book, I would open up a text file and type out my favorite ideas from this book often paraphrasing um the the ideas that like or it was just to capture the idea so that later i could just go back to the text file and review it in a few minutes and i could just you know give away the book lose the book i wouldn't have to read the 300 page book again i could just read the two pages of the ideas that i found the most interesting in this book so i just kept up the habit ever since and after doing it for a few years um i started posting them on my site i was worried that that would violate copyright somehow but nobody's complained yet um so if you go to sivers s-i-v-e dot slash book you will see i think it's up to 330 books now um every time i read a non-fiction book not fiction uh, fiction i just enjoy like a movie but when i'm reading a non-fiction book i jot down the most interesting ideas and i post them and i review them often um I'd say every week I go back through my notes from old books I've read and I just scan the notes. Or sometimes if I'm wrestling with a particular problem, I go back to the books that were written about that topic that I'm having a problem with and I review those carefully and I think about how I can apply what I read eight years ago to my current situation today. It's so useful. Talk about one of the best things I've ever done. Like, Yeah, taking book notes like this has been one of the best habits I ever did. That's why I didn't, when you said like, help me remember something or kind of solidify something I knew, I had already done that. So I I really just wanted to stop taking in new information and just output what I had learned up till this point, just so I could get it done.
1: I'm choosing these words carefully. I really admire the pairing of simplicity and discipline that I sense that you have. Are do you identify with those words are you saying yes, or do either of those words feel like the wrong words? Oh no, both dead on, yeah, you're so methodical, you know you've been doing this for fifteen years with book notes and but then also there's- a simplicity like even your URLs are so simple that you can just say them on a podcast. I'm not hyper disciplined, but I am hyper
0: uh simplified uh everything i do i'm constantly trying to get to the like how can this be simplified whether it's an idea whether
1: it's my life whether it's the essence of everything we do on a daily basis and how does that help you write like like where does it show up in your writing process what's going on well uh yeah if you go to sive.rs slash seven (laughs) you will
0: see my bullet list of my writing process which is to dump out everything i'm thinking on a subject i do the full unfiltered brainstorm um into a text document i just dump and i dump in every single point i i argue against myself i question it and then i answer my questions and then i question my answers and i do all this back and forth until it's exhaustive and i just feel like that's 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 all i have to say about that but then i go back to it and i go okay this is a mess um, what's the gist of what I've said here? Or what's the gist of my conclusion? And then I literally make a good old-fashioned outline with the little bullet points and just a few words in each point, not even complete sentences. And so i like, well, out of all this hairball of a mess of thoughts I have here, I think the gist is this. Bup, 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 And then I look at those few sentences And I think, okay, so really all I need to say is this, and I'll maybe add in a couple sentences just for context. Maybe I'll take point three, add a couple sentences that need to be said, because it wouldn't make sense without those couple sentences. And then I look at that, it's like 22 sentences, and I think, there you go, that's done. And that's what I end up posting. So I think the average length of an article on my website is 22 sentences, and it's because of this process. But it's it's everything in life. I mean, the where I live uh, and the computer. God, even if you were to see the way I use a computer. Speaking of my friend Amber Rubarth, who I mentioned earlier, let's just mention her again. Um, she just was at my house and like looking over my shoulder once as I was on the computer, and she goes like, "I have never seen somebody use a computer like that. This is so weird." And it's because I spend most of my time in a black Unix terminal, like full screen. There's not even a menu bar at the bottom. There's not a clock at the right. I don't want a single pixel on my screen that doesn't have to be there. And so because of that, I found I use an, uh, an obscure operating system called OpenBSD because it was like the most minimalist I could find. I, and even on OpenBSD, I use this obscure window manager called Rat Poison because it's the only one I've ever found that removes every single pixel from the screen except what you're working on. No menu bar, no bl- bl- icons in the top right corner. I hate all that clutter. So, um, yeah, so then I do everything often without any graphics at all, no mouse, just like this raw Unix seventies terminal plain text. And it's like, ah, there simplicity. I like this, you know, it, it just gives me this deep sense of, uh, contentment like there, this is how things should be. Even, you know, like when it came to the, like the cover of my books, I worked with a, like 12 different graphic designers that came up with like 36 different cover designs for my books. And with everything, I was like, mm, no, it's just, uh, I want it simpler. I want it simpler. And eventually I thought, wait a minute, like, why do I need images on my book cover? I love it when you find a hardcover book and you take off that glossy, shiny outer wrapping, and what you have underneath looks like a library book, you know, it's like just the title. The author, that's it. I thought, damn, that's so badass. See, those books look wise. And you see those old books with just the title and the author, and that's it. And so, yeah, that's what my books look like. And it's because of this. I'm just so many things in life. It my wife gets a little annoyed with it because I try to do that in her house too, and she says, But I don't like that. That's too minimalist. It's sad. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. I'll draw the line there. I'll do it in other things in my life, including my my office. And uh, and my writing and my computer, I'm just constantly pushing for the simplification. Oh, my code. I spent a lot of time programming. Yeah, you mentioned my URLs. All of this. I'm just constantly asking, like, how can it be simpler?
1: What's the point of trying so hard
0: to make it right? It's not trying to make it right. It's just trying to get to the essence of things. Because it the rest feels like clutter. It feels like waste. It feels like excess baggage. It feels like pollution, like it it's noise, uh, signal versus noise. I'm trying to just get the signal and get rid of all the noise, even you know in a sentence, these words that don't need to be there, they're just clutter, they're distractions, these those little comma phrases uh when people say things like, well, going forward da 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 da, or uh on the other hand, or you know, come to think of it, uh all these kinds of phrases just aren't necessary. We could just say the thing um. And uh yeah, I'm trying to get to the essence of things to to get rid of the pollution. Like that's when I say the pixels on my screen and using rat poison, um it's because it feels that's visual pollution. And I don't want pollution in my eyes, I don't want to put out pollution into the world, I don't want to put out sentences that don't need to be there. Um uh, yeah, that's that's the real point.
1: How much of this is a Derek thing versus what it means to have something of quality. For example, take something like the Sistine Chapel, magnificent, not distilled to its essence. You
0: know, if you've been to Paris, it's one of the most ornate cities you've ever seen just everywhere, every little balcony, every little, uh, the eaves on every building just have all those little squirly, squirly, squirly. It's just so ornate. Yeah. It goes against my sense of like, ah, none of that's necessary, but I'm like, ah, all right. It's just a different approach. I mean, which when it comes down to it, that's what my book, How to Live, was about, is that life is not a problem to be solved, but it's a paradox to be experienced, that you can believe one thing and you can also believe its opposite. And you can even live one thing and also live its opposite. Both can be true.
1: So I'm a Paris guy. That's my favorite city in the world. The aesthetic of Paris, like that's what I try to invite in my life. And I struggle so much with simplicity. Every time. I share an image of a space with someone whose taste I admire, The response is always that it's cluttered. But the spaces have life. They have energy. They look like they've been used. They look like things are happening in the space. And what I love about talking to you and reading your work is you're always making me question, why am I like that? Why do I believe that? And I think that's something that's really cool about the way that you do things is you're so aligned as a human and so clear on what it is that you do and don't value. And that that alignment, that resonance with who you want to be and who you are and how earnestly you work to try to bring those two together, I think it really shows up in your writing because um, that's what it is. It's trying that refinement. It's just cool to see. The synthesis of how you live, how you write. Thank you. It's funny how we we must have different
0: mental associations with certain traits. Um, it reminds me of when I moved to Singapore. It was hard to find any silence. Singapore is all dense. There's almost none of it that's not dense. Uh, it's just one little island. Um... And so shortly after I got there, I thought, God, you know what would be wonderful is to make a co-working office space, but call it solitude, like solitude.sg. And it would be working spaces for people who want silence. And so I batted this idea around all my Singaporean friends shortly after I arrived, and everybody was against it. In their gentle ways, kind of like, "Hmm, yeah, maybe we'll see, you know, Uh, but then some were more confrontational and said, like, no, that's just not going to work here. That doesn't work with the culture. And they said, you have to understand Singapore is like two thirds Chinese heritage, like Chinese ethnicity. Um, And in Chinese culture, noise is life. Silence is death. And we like noise like that's vibrancy it's life it's alive so people like to work in busy noisy spaces and it's just you know where you get your energy and, and whoa okay so that's like culture you know in the same way that you hear these things like uh you know in china people wear white for funerals uh so don't wear white because it means death or something like that or um People have different cultural associations with different things. So I think about that when you say that you see a cluttered space and to you it means life and there's things going on here and uh, and Paris suits me and all that. So it's like, it's cool. You've just got different mental associations with these values. Traveling is a fun way to go to a place not that's pleasant and similar to where you grew up, but ideally to go to somewhere that's so different from where you grew up so you can see a different working philosophy. Like, I think that the cultures of countries are philosophies in action. They're applied philosophies. And you can see a working culture that values very different things than you, that does not value individualism, or does not value ambition, or does not value pleasure, or does not value, you know, things that you think of as just um, unquestionably true or unquestionably valuable Another culture might not value those things. And it's cool then to not just visit and take some pictures, but to, to get into it and try to import, try to adopt that mindset and try to see the world that way.
1: You wanted How to Live to be very persuasive. How did you go about achieving that? You and I have a uh, a,
0: a mutual friend, Ellen Fishbind. Yeah. I worked with her writing... Dot coach service, uh, William. I forget his last name George right Steve. now. Thank you. Yes, I worked with him on how to live. Uh, I worked with a bunch of editors, constantly trying to give me feedback. Like, is this persuasive? How I, how can I be more persuasive? In the end, um, I got some some advice. I did the best I could. Um, the only test I had because by the time it was like getting down to those final revisions, I had been working on it almost full time for four years. I just wanted to get it out. So all I know is that I was persuaded as I was writing it, that each time I was writing a chapter, I felt like, you know what, forget those other chapters. This is it. This one has the answer. This is how to live. And I was completely convinced myself that this was it. And then I'd work on the next chapter, which had the opposite point of view. And I'd say, you know what, actually... What was I thinking yesterday? <laughs> that one is, right. this is it. This is really the way to live. And so I persuaded myself very well. I don't know if it was persuasive to others, but I had to just draw a line somewhere and say, I think it's good enough.
1: People ask, how do you know when you're done? And you never really feel done. And it's frustrating. And I've published pieces too early where I needed to work on them more. And I didn't have the courage to look in the mirror and say, I needed to make a change. And for whatever reason, I was afraid to do that. Maybe I co-wrote a piece with somebody and I was afraid to tell somebody else that something that they wrote wasn't good enough or vice versa. And then I've also written pieces going back to the beginning of our conversation that I spent too much time on in a way. And now I've been working through this and I think that When you were talking about the seven ways that you write, one of the things that I think I'm missing is that you can have an epiphany after you've been working on something for a while. And once you have that epiphany, you can just run with it. You can roar. You can sprint, take off like a cheetah. And what I mean is that it's okay to be working on something for a while, put that on the other side, and just write from memory. I think it's Jordan Peterson who says, that one of the best reasons why you should write from memory is that when you do that, it's this compression algorithm in your head where your brain is automatically separating what is the signal from what is the noise. And I think that that's super helpful. And so I've sort of worked my way out of this with something I'm going to try, which is, it's okay if I work on something for a while, but often, and the question is, how do you know when? I probably need to start all over and write it and I'll run through that compression algorithm and still maintain that giddiness that I think is part of good writing.
0: Nice. I like that. Yeah, Jordan Peterson says the same thing about things like the Bible and fables, where he said, like, you gotta understand these oral traditions have let everything fall aside that wasn't important in these stories. Everything in these stories is important. I like that.
1: Buying this book was really fun. And I don't think I've ever said that about a book. I bought it on your <laughs> website. You had good follow-up emails. And then I got all your books in the mail at the same time. Why do you sell books in the way that you do? few reasons. I mean, for one, it's just you think things
0: could be done better. You don't just want to be a book on Amazon with that whole mess. And maybe you don't fully support Amazon and don't think that, they, that the world should be giving them more money. Um, but sometimes you just feel like things could be done better. Uh, and so, with selling books, I just felt that I could do it better than Amazon. There was a time when I doubted that. I thought, "What am I saying?" You know, I'll just. And I thought, "Wait a second! I'm the da- I'm the guy that started CD Baby. I've done this before. I've built a store before. I can build a little store for my own books. I can do this. And it's part of that simplification by building my own store. I got to simplify things even more instead of throwing people into a big, grand bazaar full of noise and clutter. It's just a nice, simple site that says, here's the four books. But then there were also pricing things, right? Like, I never liked the fact that if you bought a paper book and now you want the audiobook, you have to pay for it again to get the audiobook. But now you want the ebook, and you have to pay for it again to get the ebook. I just thought, you know, it should just be that the means of delivery to get the words from my head to yours, the means of delivery shouldn't matter. Like, you should just be able to buy the book, meaning the contents. And whether you want it on paper or ebook or audiobook, or I am actually just releasing a video book today, um, that that shouldn't matter. Um, it should all just be the same price, and it should all be included. So you buy my book now, and maybe you have the paper book shipped to you, and maybe two years from now you've given away the paper book, but you just log into my site and you get the ebook, and then four years from now you feel like listening to it on a hike, you get the e- the audiobook, and it's all included. Uh, so that was one thing. The other thing is, I give all the money to charity, 100%. I keep nothing for myself. So, if I sell it on Amazon, much less goes to charity. You buy it directly from me, the entire $15 goes to charity. That was another reason. Um, Another reason was the long-term relationship with the person who buys it. So, if you buy a book from me, I like that I know you and I know that you've bought this book and you I, you get an email that's actually from me and you hit reply and it actually goes to me and it's like a direct conversation. Um and that I learned from experience um running CD Baby where I started to get some former rock stars that used to be famous in the 80s or 90s would put out an independent release directly through me through CD Baby and more than twice at least twice, I can think of two concrete, and I think I heard it a few more times. These former rock stars would say, You know, I sold a million albums through Warner Brothers or EMI or something, but selling a thousand directly through you means more. Like it feels better because I'm actually seeing the thousand people that bought it. Because the way I ran CD Baby is I would let you know every time you sold something here's who bought it, here's the name and address and email address. Of the person that bought it, and even often the comment on how they heard of it—you know, heard you on KEXP, went and searched your name, found it—you know—and the these former rock stars would tell me that it meant more to them to have a direct connection with a thousand fans instead of just hearing from their label. You've sold a million copies, so um, yeah, having sold my first book on Penguin, I knew that that would feel better to sell directly. So. Stack up all those reasons, and that's why it was, you know, a no-brainer for me.
1: How do you think it changes your writing? For one thing, you don't have to go through a publisher. But I've actually never had to please a
0: publisher. Um, The only publisher I worked with, Penguin, just kind of bought my finished thing from Seth Godin. Um, So I I never had to, like, please a publisher. But there's one thing, you know, we haven't talked about? I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly, is when I made the decision to print hardcover books, you know, you're, you talk a lot about online writing. And I used to think of all of my writing as being online only. But once I made the decision to print hardcover books, it was like, all right, I'm going to be killing trees. (laughs) And if I wasn't succinct before, that made me even more succinct. I was like, I want these books to have the least number of pages possible. It made me go back and look at every sentence like, is this really worth killing a tree over? (laughs) And every sentence had to pass that test. Like, all right, this is murder worthy.
1: Yeah, hear the same thing with people who used to handwrite and then they'd have to put it at typewriter. to say the same thing. I was reading uh, Shelby Foote. He was one of the great Civil War historians. And he was a novelist and he is one of those Paris Review interviews that are just incredible. All of them, like interview quality bar, Paris Review, top notch. And he said that one of the big problems with writing on a computer is that there's a lastingness to things that you write on a computer because you can copy and paste it, that there isn't with handwriting and putting it into a typewriter i like that again it's like what we were saying with the oral tradition
0: the things that get worn down through writing from memory or retelling and yeah, just the just the stuff that needs to be there it's a cool common thread so then what is the role of online writing in your portfolio mm, my number one bit of advice when people ask my advice about writing a book is i say don't think of it as a book Put one idea at a time out into the world, like shine a spotlight on each idea. Because it would always make me sad that there would be these books that I would read all the way to the end. And sometimes there would be a brilliant idea on page 280. And I've read the statistics of how few people well, first, how few people buy a book and how few of those that buy a book actually read the book. And I thought, man, there's so few people reading this idea on page 280 i wish this idea would have had its own spotlight and uh i think that's a reason to post individual ideas online as individual articles um get them out into the world let them breathe let them get some feedback um don't just keep them in your own private locked secret um area release them to the world then the world can can give you some feedback on them you can test them out. You can see where you might have been thinking about it wrong, or you can get people applauding and saying, oh my God, I love this idea. And then you take all of these things, you've, these individual ideas you've posted online, and then you can turn them into a book with a greater sense of confidence that these, are the, that these ideas are ready as a collection of ideas in a book. That's
1: how I see it. How do you think that the shareability works differently? In the sense that when somebody shares a book with me, the chance that I read it is much lower, but the weight of the recommendation is much higher, both in the added friction of sharing a book, and if somebody shares an article with you, they say, hey, check this out. This is pretty cool. Someone shares a book with you, they say, this changed my life.
0: Yeah, I have nothing to add. I agree.
1: You wrote anything you want in what, 10 days? Yeah. I didn't
0: ever mean to write a book. And then Seth Godin like literally called me out of the blue. My phone rang from an unknown number and I answered and he said, Derek, it's Seth Godin. I went, oh my God, hi. And he said, uh, I'm starting a new publishing company and I want you to be one of my first authors. Will you do it? I said, of course. <laughs> so he said, okay, I'm imagining this. He's actually the one, maybe to blame for my short books, he said, these aren't going to be like usual books, they're going to be more like manifestos. He said, I want like 10,000 words, 11,000 words, they're going to be a manifesto. And I said, all right. He said, so, uh, yeah, go. I said, okay. And so I just kind of looked at some of the things I'd written already. Um, It's about half of it, just telling my stories of how I started and grew and left CD Baby. And I realized there was a lot to be told, but it was just—it was because I was just telling stories from my life. It's like things. You know, speaking of re- going back in our conversation, these are things that I had all talked about with friends before. I had talked about them even to crowds before. I had spoken at conferences to rooms of hundreds of people where I had told these stories, and I had heard the audience laugh at this point, and I knew that that was a point that should be kept. I told these stories to friends, and I wasn't having to conjure new insights i was just telling my tale so yeah i did it in i mean not just 10 days it was a probably a total of like 20 hours and then i sent it to seth going what do you think and uh he said yeah it's great
1: we like it um and it came out like a week later and that was it how do you think about mastering this craft i mean you talk about i just love this idea of mastery because what happens is when you first learn to write, right? We know school. This isn't a criticism. It's honestly, it's learning every single craft. You got to learn the basics. When I went to basketball camp, through the legs, spin move, behind the mat, behind the back, the crossover, the four dribbles that every point guard needs to know. And I I still have my basketball coach, Elliot Smith, telling me that hundreds of times. And when you write, it's the same sort of things. So you got to know what is the role of a, a comma? What is the role of a, per- a period? What's the role of a semicolon? Delete it. What, when do you have a paragraph break? Uh, all these sorts of things. But then what I think is beautiful about mastery is mastery is divergent. Mastery, the road to mastery begins when you say that I need to start asking my own questions and start answering, asking questions that haven't been asked so I can find answers that nobody else has found. And how do you think about doing that?
0: Well, first I should say, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you now. If anybody were to ask me, who do you think, like, who do you know is on the path of mastery to being a great writer, to like mastering writing? I would say David Prill. Like, I think you, you are the embodiment of the mastery path to writing. I so admire. That means a lot. Not just what you're doing now, but everything, like the whole approach that you've taken i think it is the way to go like you are mastering the craft and i so admire it uh, and i think that's what's what's amazing like you've dove in to this one thing hundred percent i think i've always for forever um if i thought about writing at all it was always secondary you know like i was mostly helping musicians and then sometimes i would write a little story that I thought was worth sharing that I thought would help musicians. But mostly I was like hands-on helping musicians. Then I was mostly running a business. And every now and then I'd write a little story about something I had learned from running a business. But I always thought of my writing as just telling some tales on the side as a side effect of what I was doing. I was never focused on the craft of writing, the mastery of writing itself.
1: The story that I tell myself is I have way below average writing skills. And therefore, I need to work harder than everybody else to learn this craft. What is your process for becoming a master writer? Okay, you've, qu- you've made some quotes here. I'm
0: going to quote somebody. I don't know who said it, but some musician at some point said, if you can learn music, you can learn anything. And I loved that because if you think of the typical path of learning an instrument, Lots of playing your scales, not just scales, but arpeggios, and this, different chord patterns, spread out, tight. It's digging into these little details. Um, When you hear a musician practicing, it should sound bad. Musicians practice what they can't play. Musicians don't just sit there and play what they know all the time, or if they do, they would suck. They would just not ever get any better. When a musician is practicing, where they're playing is the awful sounding things because they can't play it yet. It's like, damn it, okay, wait, wait, closer, and they go, okay, there we go. I did it once. Let me try it again. And they just they'll take this thing that they don't know how to do and they'll just do it again and again and again until they finally feel like. All right, I think I can do this now. Now let me go back 10 seconds into the piece and make sure I can play this difficult bit in context, you know. da 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 da. Oh my god. Ah, did it, you know, but even once you've done it once, you practice it again and again. Um you focus on things you can't do. Oh, and you you dive into other's people other people's work that you admire and you try to distill What is it that I admired about that? So we would analyze songs um, and try to figure out what made that melody work so well. Like, exactly what? What note made that phrase intriguing? What chord kept me listening instead of feeling like switching it off? Or what word pulled me into this lyric? Um, And then you'd extract the technique And then we'd say, or actually, you know, I took songwriting classes at Berklee School of Music, they would say, okay, I've showed you this technique today, Um, go write me three songs using this technique by Thursday. And so people would have to just come up with three songs that use this technique, let's say, of when you've got an eight-bar phrase, the usual thing is to do a four-bar phrase, a four-bar phrase. Instead, they'd say, try breaking it into three and three and two, or other unusual combinations give me a 5 bar phra- five bar phrase and a 3 bar phrase to use the 8 bars and that would be your challenge for Thursday go and it was so fun to write in this um let's say left-brained way we think of songwriting and writing as just pure creativity and so to take certain rules and apply it to me is is creatively liberating because it's just saying all right i'm just going to do this technique and actually some great songs of mine came out from these little challenges look at what musicians do to master their craft and think of how you could apply that to whatever you're trying to master not i mean we're speaking mostly to writers today but say if you're trying to be a great programmer or what would it look like to try to master entrepreneurship the way that musicians practice their instrument like could you actually like start a business every day? (laughs) Could you start a hundred businesses just to practice the craft of starting a business? Um, The answer is probably no, but there's an idea in there somewhere. So yeah, that, that to me is the path.
1: Yeah. My little phrase that I like to use for this is practice analytically, perform intuitively. And it came out of A really cool experience that I had when I was 13 years old. I wanted to compete as a college golfer. And during my freshman year of high school, I started playing in these tournaments. This tournament was in Fresno. And I remember being on the driving range with this guy, Bryson DeChambeau, who was like one of the big 15-year-olds at the time or something like that. And he won the tournament by eight shots. I remember watching him practice. He had his coach out there. He was so focused, so regimented. And I remember driving home with my three best buddies from high school back to San Francisco. And we were like, we don't know who this guy is, but he was so much better than us. Last time I checked, he was the number five ranked golfer in the entire world. And what I learned from Bryson was this. This sense that you can practice like that. But he won the US Open two years ago. Saturday had a tough day. Saturday night goes to the driving range. And the last words to his coach before he left the range on Saturday and won the next day was All right, I found my feel. Now I'm just going to go play like fun on Sunday. And I love this idea that you would deconstruct everything when you're in that practice mode. But then once you find the feel, you let that analysis, that learning, that left brain move through you. The right brain kicks in. The intuition flows. There's a whole book about this called The Inner Game of Tennis. Great book. You know it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Have you seen the YouTube video on it? No. There's a YouTube video where Tim Galway, he shows, basically takes these women and is working with them to hit. And he just says, ball, hit, or bounce, hit, bounce, hit. And they go from being in this analytical mindset to this intuitive one, and they start rocking it. It's it's impressive. Do you feel intuitive when you're writing, even though you're doing some of that analysis? I try to focus on the, you know, we've, we've talked a
0: lot about the craft today, but going back, you know, I think that Again, the craft is pointless without a good idea underneath it. So I try to mostly just focus on the core idea. And then when you're talking about just sharing an idea you've had, to me, the whole idea, like intuitive versus craft, it's just, for the most part, it's just it's like talking. I try to, mostly I like to write like I talk. You know, my last book, How to Live, was an exercise. And like, how can I take 1,300 pages and instead say it in 112? So that's why you got this kind of hyper compression or every page, what was a page is now just a sentence. But for the most part, I think my writing is just a simplified version of how I talk. And so I don't, no, I, I don't really put conscious craft into it so much. You're right. Yeah, I guess if you'd call that intuitive, that that almost feels like over glorifying it. Um, because it's not even like sports. It is just like talking. But editing out the unnecessary words. <laughs> Did you see the movie Midnight in... Was it Midnight in Paris? The Woody Allen movie where... So Owen Wilson goes back to 1920s Paris. The, my favorite thing about this movie are two characters. For one, um, the guy that plays Salvador Dali just does this great... Like, I'm Dali! Dali! But the guy that plays Ernest Hemingway, he talks like Ernest Hemingway writes. And it's powerful. I love the way that he says these direct sentences. He says them, he concludes them, and he stops talking. <laughs> and I love that. And watching that movie, I was like, damn it, see? That's a way to kind of like to walk your, to walk your words, to, walk your, uh, to talk, the, talk the way you write, um, is the way that that actor plays Ernest Hemingway in Midnight Before Paris. I recommend it just for those scenes alone.
1: A lot of people struggle with that. Like if you read the writer of somebody who's just left sixth, seventh grade and they're trying to write based off the novels that they're reading and stuff, it's so over the top. It's just trying too hard. And write like you talk is the most obvious advice that no writing teacher ever told me. I I, I don't know what's going on with that. To me, I think the biggest problem to unlearn from
0: school is page count, is feeling like something has to be 10 pages on a subject. Um, and if you think you get a book deal, that it has to be 300 pages. Um, I'm constantly trying to say, like, how can I make this shorter? How can I say less? Whereas I think we spend so many years because of needing to turn in assignments, like you said about the fish, where we feel we have nothing to say about this. And so you use all of these padding words because they fill up more space and it makes it sound like you're saying something when you're actually saying nothing. And um, that's, to me, the the hardest lesson from school to unlearn.
1: Jason Freed at Basecamp has a little post called The Writing Class I'd Like to Teach. And he says, take an idea, write two pages about it, write one page about it, write one paragraph about it, write one sentence about it. There you go. Communicate the same amount of
0: information. Yeah, we're we're kindreds. I love his style. How did you meet Tyler Cowen? Did you just reach out to him out of the blue, I think?
1: Yeah, I, I, I reached out to him and I said, hey, I'm 22 years old. I am living in New York City. I would like to go interview. I'll take. Uh, I'll go down to DC. I had no money at the time, so I took a five dollar mega bus, and it was packed. I'm sitting. It was the last ticket, so I'm sitting in one of those. You have the middle table, and it's like seats of four, and traffic the whole way down, and our legs are just like rubbing against each other. Terrible experience. But I go down, have a. Uh, have an hour with Tyler. And I remember at the end, he said, you're a kindred spirit. I didn't know what a kindred spirit was at the time. I didn't know what that was. So I get out of the room. I look up, what does kindred, kindred spirit mean? I'm like, oh, wow, that's a really nice compliment. And a year later, I get a $20,000 grant from Tyler Cowen, which allows me to start write of passage. Otherwise, without that money, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And you just, you cold called him. I
0: love that. And I think there was even a story. I listened to the interview you guys did together where you said that you emailed him some long piece you had written and he replied back almost instantly. You were like, How the hell did you read that in time? And he actually had like critique on your piece and had read it. It's just, I think, yeah, people underestimate how effective it can be to just cold email somebody and make that introduction. Cause ideally, if you have enough um, self esteem, you think of yourself as worthy to speak with too. And the people that are putting themselves out there publicly are the ones that like this two-way connection. There are plenty of people doing what we do that just stay head down and silent and don't talk to anybody. But the ones that lift their heads up to the world and put themselves out there like this are the ones that
1: like the two-way interaction with people. So, like, Tyler obviously does. It's really nice to just get somebody who reaches out with something earnest and that isn't just some kind of templated email because it just reminds you that what you're doing is moving people in some way and there's always some insecurity that you have when you're a writer like am I actually reaching people am I actually are these just like words that are being lost to time are they just evaporating or are they actually reaching somebody you can look at page view numbers but like one email (laughs) There's so much more for you than seven figures on a page for your number. It's just a number. Do you know that actually, again, I I know a
0: lot of famous musicians from my years in the music industry. And all of them sincerely love it when somebody would come up and do that thing that we think of as like, oh, I'm just fangirling. I'm just fanboying. I'm just gushing you go up to a musician that you love, you're like, oh my God, like this song you wrote made such a big difference to me. And oh, I, I love this work. And, and it's like, I think it's actually their favorite part of the job. It's like, that's what they live for is getting that kind of sincere, personal, gushing feedback when somebody says that it means everything to them. Right. And so, yeah, when I, as people ask why I answer my email every day, it's because every day I check my email. There's something really nice in there and somebody's telling me like, I don't know, just telling me nice ways that something, how something I've written has helped them. And in fact, I'd say that's probably the single biggest motivation for my writing at all is because of how much it's meant to me when I've read a book that introduced a new way of thinking of something that blew my mind, made me think of everything differently. And how powerful that was, and how it like permanently changed the way I see the world. And then, so when I have some kind of epiphany or insight, I try to put it out in the world in the hopes that somebody somewhere from Nepal to Nebraska will read this idea and go, Oh my God, yes, this helps me live my life. This helps me see the world in a way that works better for me. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. And so when somebody, emails to tell me like, oh
1: my God, this idea of yours made a big difference to me. It's like, there we go. Like that's the ultimate reward. And one thing I'll add to that is actually do it. When people hear something like that, what goes through their head is I'm not going to do that because a lot of people don't do it. And this person isn't actually going to read it. I promise you not nearly as many people reach out as you think. And I know from email like you, that you're actually going to read it. Yeah. You should always cold call
0: Uh, cold email people you like in fact i do this with every book that i love um all those books that you see on my book list like the ones you see at the top on my website of my the book notes that i've read every time i love a book i stop and i just find the author even if i have to dig hard to find her email address i will find it and email them and say thank you i loved this book and here's why and they almost always reply it's so rewarding the reason i do a lot of these uh podcasts is main thing is because of the people that i meet afterwards you know the kind of the kind of person who listens all the way to the end of an interview like this is my kind of person so if you listen to the end go to my website and
1: email and introduce yourself derek this was a blast i feel like this was was years in the making and it just was one of the most fun conversations ever had about writing so thank you me too thanks david